Blog Talk Radio. Betrayal Trauma Radio. Help for partners after sexual betrayal. Your source for healing. Your host, Carol Jurgensen Chief, a.k.a. Carol the Coach, is here to help you navigate through the crisis of finding out that your partner is a sex addict. She is at trained, so she knows that you're likely facing the greatest trauma of your life. Carol the Coach is here to help you find safety in an unsafe situation. Now, here is your host, Carol the Coach. Well, thank you very much. And as most of you know, I am so proud of this APSAT certification. You know, if you're a clinician right now listening to the show, I know that you want to get as many tools as possible to help the partners that you work with. And I can't highly recommend APSATs enough. And here's why. You know, this is an organization that trains clinicians and coaches on how to be partner sensitive and help a partner who may be experiencing trauma as a result of the sexual addiction. And what, what I know is that I didn't know what I didn't know until I got my training and, and learned more about trauma and, and learned about reactions and how to build safety and stabilization into my client's life. And then you know, how to help him or her grieve, grieve the loss of what she thought she had and what she wanted in her life and the ideal that probably most of us have when we marry into a relationship with somebody that we want to trust for the rest of our lives. Now, that third stage of helping a partner with partner-sensitive issues is that you have to help her restore her own sense of self, her own intuitive experience. Um, Hopefully you you can help the coupleship too. Uh, But if you can't, at least you can help her and the family members because they're hurting for sure. Whether they know what's going on or not, they can sense the tension between the couple and they see devastation on their parents' faces, and they don't know what's going on, and you know that it's similar to a divorce. When kids experience that kind of tension and they can't put words to it because they don't understand it, they oftentimes think it has something to do with them. And so we really want to keep kids from feeling responsible for what's going on at home. Now, We always talk about tools, tools that will make somebody feel better, Uh, resources that are available. And today we are going to be talking with David Robbins, who's a retired detective staff sergeant who's completed over 30 years of service, but he specifically made his mission in 1980 to take a polygraph examiner's course at the Canadian Police College. Colleague Jennifer Cole uh, recommended him for the show because she has just been really enthralled with his work. This is a man who is dedicated to helping sex addicts and partners get through this process of a polygraph with integrity, with information, and And David is smart enough to know that um, it can be very, very helpful after a disclosure. Now, for anybody who's listening to the show for the first time, you may not know what a disclosure is, but we at APSATS really believe that sooner as opposed to later, probably within the first three to four months of discovery, that it's important for the addict and the partner to go through a process by which all the information is shared. The addict is sharing with the partner anything that she really wants to know. And so she, in, in preparing for this disclosure, comes up with her own questions so that she doesn't have to get staggered information, you know, for days, weeks, months, 
or even years, she is available with this disclosure to really work on what it is she needs to know to feel safe. Now, I say to feel safe. I'm telling you, discovery is absolutely the worst thing in the world in that that's when you find out about your husband or wife's sexual addiction. But disclosure is that process where a therapist works with the sex addict and gets him prepared, and he writes out a document that may be anywhere from six or seven pages to 30 pages long, depending on the amount, the intensity, the frequency, and the length of acting out. And then we have, as I indicated, the partner who writes out every question that is conceivable in her mind, that's ruminating in her mind, so that she can have all of her questions answered. And because this process, it takes anywhere from four to six weeks, really, once you start it. And I, by that, I mean compiling the information, writing out a timeline. You know, the addict has at least three or four good sessions with a therapist to, to write the, this thing out properly. And that gives the partner enough time to really think about, what is it I want to know? And, and those aren't questions like, do you love me? Those are questions about the facts. Have you been to a prostitute? How many affairs have you had? How many websites have you been to? And then you organize a session that's two or three hours long for this disclosure to occur. Now, my recommendation is, if at all possible, you then follow it up with a polygraph test. 24 hours afterwards. We at APSATS also believe that it can be very helpful to do a polygraph before the disclosure, making sure that the addict is really ready to give information, really ready to get honest, really ready to hide a thing. So between those two potential polygraphs, you then have a partner who knows that she got all of her information. She knows that he did absolutely the best, that he did not omit anything um, purposefully, or as we call it, lying by omission. And he really, understandably, um, wants to come clean for his own mental health, but to write the wrong, to start the beginnings of righting the wrongs. And so a lot of times um, partners will have questions about polygraphs in general because sometimes then we give a polygraph three or four times a year for three to five years just to make the partner feel safe. And my friend Jen Cole, who's a registered nurse and certified professional coach through APSAT, she's now the operations coordinator for our organization, she lives in Ontario, Canada, too, and she said that her most common questions that she gets about the polygraph is, one, how do I know or trust that this is a reliable tool to help in that trust-building process? Two, what scientifically allows me as a partner to buy into trusting this tool, you know, we women want the truth, and we want science to help make that real. Three, are there different ways to test, and how does that affect the reliability? Four, what does the partner need to do to prepare? Five, what does the addict need to do to prepare for this polygraph? How often can the addict be tested? What happens during the exam? How long does it take? And who gets the results? So those are some of the questions that we are going to be answering today um, on Betrayal Recovery Radio. And, hey, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Nice to be here. Yes, absolutely. And is this Jennifer? 
Yes, sorry. This is Jennifer Cole. And so I was just listening, listening to your amazing introduction. And uh, you know our hearts are aligned on this. So this is going to be a great conversation today. Well, and thank you so much for setting me up with such a skilled polygrapher. Now, Jennifer, you've been doing this a long time. What do you mm-hmm. think is the most helpful thing about polygraph tests? I always say first thought, best thought, and Carol, it's a fresh start. That's what I love about polygraphs. And to expand on that further, um, what I mean is it gives the addict the opportunity to show his transparency, which I know can be very, very difficult because as the addiction suggests, it's all about lies by omission or otherwise. And so his transparency and that vulnerability to do whatever it's going to take to make his wife feel safe is critical. Mm -hmm. And then, and then when I say fresh start, it's, you know, it's, it's a tool, it's a point in time. It's one tool in our toolbox for healing. But that day when they pass the polygraph and as a partner, you can kind of breathe a little bit more freely knowing, okay, this is awful, but now I know the truth. Then you can carry on. And decide from there. It's that's what I love about them. Yes, and as you said, it's that fresh start. And although certainly the discovery is bad enough, but the disclosure can bring up a lot of unresolved issues that need to be processed with a coach or a clinician. And at the mm-hmm. same time, now she knows the truth. And haven't you and I both found that? That is the number one thing that a partner wants. Yes. What I hear over and over again, Carol, as I'm sure you have as well, is I will have clients say to me that they are devastated and traumatized by the acting out behaviors, but what is the worst thing for them is the lie. The lie of the whole behavior, the lie of uh, where you were, you know, Tuesday at 4 o'clock, like it could be little, it could be big. It's the lying just about kills us. Well, 100%. And clearly, obviously, sexual addiction is rooted in lies. But Mm -hmm. if an addict minimizes, rationalizes, justifies, if he continues with those behaviors that promote lying, the coupleship can never heal. It will always be fractured. Mm -hmm. And it sets me back to... Step one, doesn't it? Every time a new lie comes out, no matter how big or how small, I will always hear, he put me right back to the beginning of my trauma again. So all of that hard work that both of them have tried to do in their recoveries is gone in a a snap of a finger. It undoes anything that had been worked through because, Mm -hmm. as we all know, this is a brain... um, science issue when a partner has been traumatized and she no longer is able to function as well because her cortical prefrontal is just gone offline she is Mm -hmm. really uh, not able to rationally decide what is safe and everything feels unsafe so Even I took out the garbage when I didn't take out the garbage takes her back to, I can't trust you, to be honest. Exactly. Exactly. So tell me a little bit about Oh, so I don't know. Is is he online yet? Can't tell. Okay. So, and I'll check in with him to make sure he can get on. Okay. So Dave Robbins is a polygraph examiner that I've been fortunate enough to meet here in Ontario, Canada. Um, our resources are quite limited. And from my own personal perspective, my husband used to have to fly back to Colorado twice a year just to get his polygraph done because we couldn't find anyone in our own country that uh, was sex addiction based. And so I can obviously let Dave talk more about that when he gets online, but it was a real pleasure. And I'm trying to remember now how long ago I met him, probably three years ago. And he has a real heart for couples and for partners. 
He has an extensive police background, amazing experience with, with conducting these exams. But what I wanted to share with our audience today, Carol, for those that aren't familiar with polygraphs for sex addiction, they are quite different than what you see on TV or those types of things for police shows, things like that. We don't want forensic examiners. We want people, so I guess the difference, the way I explain it to people is that we're trying to um, prove that they're telling the truth rather than catch them in a lie. And, and that's, that's where some perfect of, way to say sorry, it. And, yeah. and you knew him personally, so you know that this is a man you can trust. And isn't that important for the partnership to know that you Absolutely. can trust the examiner? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I, I believe, um, and he'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, but um, Dave also belonged to a group of examiners, or they all know each other because it's a small Good. little industry. And the first one that my husband, my first exam that we had, my husband failed. And I want to share that with the audience too, because there's a lot of talk out there about whether or not these exams are reliable. I'm almost grateful to this day that he failed the exam because it showed me that it works. And Dave was a part of that group of examiners, I think. So I think he kind of heard about us before I actually met him (laughs) because of Mm -hmm. our failed polygraph. I laugh now because we're seven years in recovery. So it's not funny. I'm not trying to be flippant. But I always say if we don't laugh, we'll cry. So, you know, it was interesting to just then cross paths with him later um, with another client. And so Dave is amazing. He will travel anywhere um, to be there for people. He works really closely with me when we get informed consent from all parties so that he can talk to me about what the issues are, help make sure that the questions are formulated just perfectly so that partner can feel real reassured that when he passes the exam, he really truly passed the exam. We want everyone to come away from this experience, like I said earlier, with that fresh start and the ability to kind of breathe freely once again. Perfectly said, Jennifer. And now I have David on the line. So, David, welcome to our Betrayal Recovery Radio. Thank you so much for being willing to educate our listeners. How are you tonight? I'm well. Yeah, so tell Hi, us Dave. a little Hi, Jen. You know, that's Jen, yeah. Tell us a little bit about what made you develop this niche, because obviously you had gotten educated and certified, but why sexual addiction? I think I fell into it more by chance than anything. Um, The first time I was asked to do a test was uh, um, a little different situation for me, the person that I was was testing was in recovery and had been sober for a year and a half and he wanted to take a polygraph and um, have me prepare a report you know with the outcome so that he could give it to his wife as a gift for her birthday um, after I did that test he asked me if I could do it and I thought about it and I thought well there's no I didn't see any reason why I couldn't. It wouldn't be much different than most other tests. But uh, as I started to do more of them, uh, what happened is he went back to his group and talked about it and was uh, very positive about the um, the experience. And I had other people in his group contact me uh, uh, to, to do it, and then I became involved in, with... Uh, their therapist, and then it kind of blossomed from there. And the All more right, I, so... oh, go ahead. Yes, the the more testing I did, the more interested I became in it. Um, and like I say, every time I do a test, I learn something new. <laughs> so, That's... You know, I know that so many of our partners want to know. Is it truly scientific? You know, how what percentage of polygraphs perhaps come back with a false positive or a false negative? What would you tell them? I would say it's difficult to, to come up with that because nobody 
if you tell someone that they've told the truth uh, when they haven't, no one comes back and tells you, you know, that you made a mistake. Um, so it's it's very difficult to, you know, to keep records of that kind. But what I can say is back in the 70s, University of Utah, uh, a couple of the professors there looked at polygraph to see if it was junk science or was there something to it. And they decided that uh, one of the techniques that was being used, that there was something something to it. And so they started doing work uh, in the field of polygraph to try and uh, improve the, the whole situation. So what they've done over the years is they've uh, tried to simplify the way polygraph is done and tried to standardize it. Um, and... Uh, after a while, they became involved with the American Polygraph Association, and they were able to say, okay, if you have a polygraph school and you want to be accredited, then your your testing technique has to meet certain criteria. Um, and and they developed their own technique out of the University of Utah, and... Um, Basically, what they're saying is it's uh, their their testing says it's approximately 93% uh, accurate if it's uh, you know done by someone that's you know that's competent. Okay, so, 93%. Now, tell us what is a polygraph exactly? Because you're right, Jen said it's not exactly like you see on TV, but people do get hipped up. So, so explain what a polygraph is. Yes, it's it's not at all like you see on TV. Uh, um, polygraph is basically an instrument that measures uh, physiological changes that take place in the person uh, when he's asked different questions. Uh, it measures uh, breathing cycles. It measures your heart rate and blood pressure. And it measures uh, what we call electrodermal activity. It's a... Uh, uh, the simplest expl- explanation is to say it's a fancy way of saying sweating. Um, so th- th- it's linked to a computer um, and, um, you know, gives us a printout. Similar, uh, I guess, closest thing I could describe is to say it looks uh, like a, uh, an ECG, if you've ever had one of those. Um, but... It, it's somewhat different. So th- there are what you're looking at is you're looking at the person's responses to different questions. Um, the University of Utah also has a, set up a scoring system. Um, so you're scoring the you know the data that you get from the the person's physiology, comparing quest- different questions, um, and the score has to meet a certain criteria or a certain level before you can make a call and say that the person's either truthful or untruthful. If it doesn't meet that threshold, then the, the uh, test is deemed to be inconclusive. Um, so some tests you're going to have to say, look, I just can't tell. And when that happens, it's it's a natural, normal, expected thing. Um, Quite frankly, I wouldn't suggest going to any examiner who will tell you that he's never had an inconclusive test uh, because it's a normal part of of the process. Um, And And can I ask you, how will nervousness affect the result? Because certainly when I work with clients, and both Jen and I do, sex addicts come in and they're almost they want to do this, but right before the test, they get angry because they're so afraid that their nervousness will upset the test and make them look as if they were lying. Yes, and that's a common uh, question that I'm asked by by people. Everyone that comes in to take a polygraph, and it doesn't matter what it's for, whether they're a sex addict or whether they're, um, you know, a bank bank robber. <laughs> It doesn't matter. They're going to be nervous when they come in to take their test. And the simple answer is the nervousness in itself will not affect the test. And I think the simple explanation of that is to say, you know, if your level of nervousness is at uh, this level when I start the test, 
um, it's going to be at the same level when I finish the test. It may be a little higher or a little lower, but that level of general nervous tension is going to be a, a baseline. And quite simply, I'm not looking at where that baseline is, whether it's you know down near the floor or up near the ceiling. I'm looking at changes from that baseline that occur at significant times during the test. So I think that's Absolutely. the simplest explanation I can, can give. Well, and Jen's on the call, and obviously before you joined us, she said it was actually a good thing for her husband to have failed the first test. Um, and Jen, again, you said that it was a good thing because? Well, because it gave me faith in the process of the actual test. Um, not to suggest I was going into it as a disbeliever. I wouldn't have paid the money and gone through the emotional pain of waiting for those results to come in. But knowing that he failed, as horrific as that was that day, it actually showed me that it, the examiner picked up on something so subtle. It was not a new acting out behavior that my husband had not disclosed. It was a detail to one of his acting out behaviors that he was actively withholding. And the failed polygraph got him to confess that, and then we, he did a whole new disclosure, and then he passed his next exam and has passed every one of them since. It gave me faith in the process. Oh, that, and that makes total sense. Now, David, I know that you talked about the scoring system, you know, by the University of yes. Utah that assigns numerical scores. Tell us the difference between somebody who's being truthful, deceptive, or inconclusive. Okay. Um, I, I'm sorry. In, in what sense do you mean that? Well, you know, I know that some of my um, clients, almost all my clients pass, but on occasion a couple of them will fail, and then sometimes they don't pass or fail, but they get an inconclusive. So if you could kind of describe the difference oh, between... Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll put it this way. Pass and fail is fairly simple. If the person's truthful to the to the relevant questions, he he's going to pass. If he isn't truthful, he's going to fail. The gray area, if you want to call it that, is the inconclusive test. Uh, anyone can give you an inconclusive test just by uh, not being cooperative with you, by coming in continually moving around, by... Um, any number of, of different things just by not being cooperative. Um, so when that happens, generally uh, what I would do is just say, listen, this is what you're doing. It's affecting the test. Um, you know, I, I want you to stop now. If they continue, then, I mean, they're at their peril. Um, you know, and People that are serious, people that are truthful, generally will they they want to show that they're truthful. They they want to pass. So, when someone continues to move around, I mean, it may be an in indication that they they are very uncomfortable, or it may be a an indication that they're lying. That's the thing is it's 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 hard to tell. So. You know, if you get an inconclusive test, then uh, my my way of dealing with it is to do a second test. Um, oh, that makes sense. Would that second uh, test be the next day or the next week? I'd like I would like to, under ideal situations, you know, give it a, a week uh, a week or so before I would do another retest. Okay. The other things that. The other things that might cause an inconclusive test might be different medications that the person's taking, um, being hungover or tired, um, you know, to the point of being exhausted. A lot of people will ask me to do a test in the evening after they've worked all day, and I, I avoid that. I, I will tell them no. Um, so, you know, I try to do it under as ideal a condition as I can. Well, and that's what sounds so admirable as well as educated about you is that you want to set these people up so that they have the most reliable test possible. 
and therefore you aren't going to measure somebody with the polygraph if it is at the end of the day, and you are going to call them on some behaviors that may or may not be um, uh, conscious. But um, I've had guys come in and say, you know, I'm hearing a lot of things from people in the 12-step group that if I wear a penny in my shoe that it will um, it'll help me pass or, you know, I, I can uh, sleep and think good thoughts the night before and think things I want to think and that will help give me a sense of confidence. And all those are kind of urban legends, aren't they? I would say yes, they are. I think that I've read all the things online about how to beat the polygraph. Um, and quite frankly, I would say unless a person has some very sophisticated training, I think it would be very difficult to come in and beat the polygraph. The scientific data says that if you're lying uh, and you use countermeasures, you're probably still going to be lying on the test. Um, the the things that are suggested are usually revolve around motion moving just moving around and giving uh, an inconclusive test or moving at certain times during the test to try and create a an appearance that that you're truthful um i have a motion detector as most examiners do i would say the exception would there'd be very few exceptions where an examiner didn't have a a motion detector, um, and and they'll pick up uh, even uh, very relaxed motions. And I've heard all those things from the t- from the day I started in polygraph about putting a tack in your shoe and uh, um, you know, uh, though, a number of things like that. But they all involve motion. They become very apparent to me. Uh, just by looking at the uh, the readout from the motion detector, the other types of of um, countermeasures also have tells that are unique to whichever one it is you're using. And again, when I when I have a close look at the charts, they become fairly obvious as well. Um, so it's, I mean, I may not see it until. After I I do the test and I'm into the point of analyzing the charts, but they are uh, fairly obvious if you know what to look for. Absolutely, and you know Jen was nice enough to compile some um, questions that our listeners and the women that she's worked with in groups have asked her about polygraphs, and so I'm just going to throw some of these out, and if you could answer them, sure. Um, are there different ways to test that may affect the reliability? There, I think the main thing that I look for when I do a test is to try and keep it as simple as possible. Um, if The best test that, that I can do is what they call a single-issue test. So if I'm doing a, a test on someone's uh, disclosure. I, I want to know. I want to keep it simple. Have they deliberately uh, tried to withhold information? Uh, and I think that's the the big big thing. Uh, have they made an honest effort to to do a full disclosure? So uh, my first test is always around that issue. Now that doesn't always answer all of the questions because very often people will want to know well, other other issues and I mean I could name a few but you know has he been with prostitutes has he um, had unprotected sex so, I mean there are always other questions or not always but there are often other questions that the partner wants to know and providing there, there aren't a lot of uh, of those uh, um, secondary issues, then I will do my best to ask those as well. Um, but I'll do that on a separate test because I want the main emphasis to be on on the disclosure itself. And generally, well, and I don't the, know. Oh, go ahead. 
And generally, generally, if the person's made a full disclosure, that then the other issues are going to fall in place. That uh, if he's truthful on the disclosure issue, most of the time he's he's truthful on the other issues. Uh huh. And you know, I was going to ask Jennifer since she was so kind to offer up some of her own personal information. Jennifer, we know that the sex addict is nervous ahead of time. Who wouldn't be? You're getting hooked up. You're whole partnership may may be contingent on the honesty. Were you nervous the night before the polygraph test? Um, Honestly, I was excited in a weird sort of way. Our very first polygraph, I was excited because I thought, well, like I said earlier, it's our fresh start. My life has been ripped out from underneath me and this is going to set us on the right path. So I was actually excited. But if I can share a quick little story, we had to drive from where I live to Toronto, which is about, well, the other side of Toronto. So it was about a three-hour drive. And my husband ended up disclosing something as we went through a certain town. And I'm like, what? I had no preparation for this, Carol. This was all back in the day where all of this was still pretty new. And so I didn't know to expect these, what we call now those parking lot disclosures, where he panicked. And now Mm -hmm. as he's realizing stuff, he's like, oh, my gosh, I have to dump this on her before I get to the polygraph. So there was that part. So that started making me feel nervous. And then I think the only time in our whole marriage he happens to get pulled over for speeding (laughs) that same day as we're driving. And as soon as the police officer walks away, he burst into tears. Burst into tears. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I just couldn't fathom what was happening. I, I was still caught up in my excitement. And then he had just given me this additional information. Nothing too new, but enough. And then he's crying because he gets a speeding ticket. It was, it was just all kind of really messy. And I'm surprised I can actually remember as much as I do in recalling this story with you right now. Because the whole thing was very traumatic. Um, but honestly, I slept like a baby the night before. I was looking forward to this and moving forward. Mm-hmm. Well, good for you because I know that that can be very traumatic for some partners, although you've always had a good attitude with this. Now, when you went to Toronto, was that mm-hmm. to see David or was that to see somebody else? That was somebody else. That was before we met Dave. That was years and years That's and years what ago. I got. Yes. Okay. Yeah, just and give us a I was going to say, tell us what you like about him specifically, because I'm not kidding you, Dave. She's been singing your praises for years. (laughs) (laughs) I was gushing about you before you got on the call, Dave. I said, is he on the call yet? Um, No, what I was saying, Dave, I can't even remember. We've known each other, I think, is it going on three years now? Yes, it's at least that. I think it's at least three years and we, cause yeah. we had a mutual client or something came up. But anyway, I was just so grateful to find someone relatively local. And as I was explaining to our audience earlier in, in Ontario, anyway, um, it was very challenging for my husband and I to find someone that wasn't forensic based. And I say that with all due respect, but they were looking to catch my husband in a lie rather than to validate his truth. And, that was very difficult for both my husband and myself because that's not, that wasn't our heart. That's not what we were going after. So when I met Dave, um, and I think you can tell just by his voice and his amazing expertise that he has a heart for the couple. He has a heart for the addict sitting right in front of him. And he definitely has a heart for the partner because in essence, we all want them to pass. We really do. And, and my experience in working with David is he will help them get to the truth, even if it hadn't already been quite put out there yet. <laughs> so I think, Dave, and I'll let you speak to that part of the process, because some clients of mine wonder, okay, so he hasn't disclosed to me, but you pick up on something. And as I understand it, you will then pause and go, okay, have you got to tell me something here so that you can move forward? Is that correct? Yes. I I look at the I look at the polygraph as being the final stage of of the disclosure, um, and uh, you know when the person comes to me, I I I have 
two competing things. I, I, I want to remain objective, but also I, I, I want to assume that he has, you know, made a complete disclosure. Um, very often what happens is I will get into the pretest and I, I just get a subjective feeling about just the way the person answers or whatever that there's there's more here that has to be said and I, I will you know I'll very often just ask you know what else do we have to talk about before I do the test and a number of times people will come out with um, something that they've overlooked um, you know it's uh, it, it's difficult because everyone everyone has that fear. I, um, you know, it's just going to be a deal breaker if I talk about this. Um, you know, is it, is my partner going to leave? I, I and it's uh, to, to overcome that fear that they have and um, and give them an opportunity to get it out. I think you have to be non-judgmental and and um, you know very sensitive to to the person that's being tested as well. Well, absolutely. And if I may add, you know, I had a man who had divulged everything, and that morning he woke up and he said one of the one of the polygraph questions was. Have you been a hundred percent truthful with his with your wife? And he could answer yes. But then the other question stated a little bit differently was, Have you left out anything from the disclosure that you know she'd want to know? And interestingly yes. enough, that next morning he woke up and he said, I did not tell her that I met a woman at our favorite coffee house. And so he kept going back and forth, back and forth as he's driving for his first test. And he thought, you know, I, I, I don't think that's a big deal. I mean, why would that be a big deal? That, that isn't a big deal. Well, he got in there, and it was a very big deal because that came back as a failure. And the same thing, the polygrapher here in Indianapolis said, you failed this. There's something you're not talking about. And he he said, well, I'll tell you, I didn't give her the name of the coffee shop, and I know she would have wanted to know that. So then he re-asked that question uh, with the exclusion of the coffee shop, and, of course, he passed it. But that meant that he had to share with the wife who was sitting out front. I don't know if you have the wives come in and, and, and hear the results of the test, but my polygrapher does. And so he came in, and he had to explain that to her. Well, she was devastated, absolutely devastated because that was their favorite place and now he had contaminated that. At the same time, he knew that it was something he needed to share to get all the secrets out. Yes. That's uh, why when I do the um, disclosure test, I like to ask both sides of that question. Has he made a complete disclosure? And is he deliberately withholding everything? And having said that, I I want to comment. I, I think it's impossible for anyone to make a complete disclosure. Um, and and I want to just explain what I mean by that. Okay. I think I think um, that people can say. Uh, in general terms, I've done this, 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 and this. They can recall several events, but there are always going to be details that that they forget or they become confused. Was that with this person or with this person, and so on? And I like to try and explain to the to the addict that you know what I I don't expect um, perfection. I want what I do expect is that you are going to be as honest uh as you possibly can in making your disclosure. I know that there are going to be details that you honestly can't remember. I know there are going to be details you get mixed up about, but 
this disclosure that you've made, is it your best effort to get everything out on the table? And is and more important, is there anything that you failed to uh, put down in your disclosure that you know that you should have? Um, and I think if if uh, he's done those two things, and then I feel that he has made a an honest if he's made an honest effort and he's not deliberately holding something back, that I think that's the best you can hope for. Yes, that um, makes total sense. Absolutely. And I want to I want to ask you before we end, and we've got about five more minutes. I want to ask you. What helped you to make the decision to travel? Because so many of our listeners and so many partners and addicts out there, they don't have a polygrapher close at all. So what made you decide, I can be a traveling polygrapher? Well, I think when I first started doing polygraph, um, I worked for the uh, Ontario Provincial Police. And so I had to travel throughout uh, the province of Ontario, and um, I was just used to, to used to traveling from doing it with them. And I thought, you know, it, it, it's not a it's not an extremely busy uh, avocation. Um, in that, I'm not doing tests every day, so I can't afford to, you know, hire office space. Um, I do some in my home, but um, if it's more convenient to travel, then I, I will travel. The, the The big thing is is that uh, it does become price prohibitive if it's too far away. I mean, depending on what the person wants to spend. Okay, uh, but, and I don't think we're allowed to talk prices on the air. But how would our clients uh, and our listeners be able to get a hold of you to get that kind of information? They can contact me through my uh, email address. It's uh, all lowercase, drobbins, with two Bs, at rogers.com. Okay, drobbins, all lowercase, at... Rogers, R-O-G-E-R-S, dot com. Okay, dot com. And do you have a website? I do. And that and website it's, uh, is? It's Robin's Polygraph Service. All right. Uh, Robin's Polygraph. Great, because I know that I'm willing to put this on, um, you know, my website and People can contact me at carol at carolthecoach.com, and I will give them that information so that they can contact you directly. One last question. What is your phone number? My phone number is Uh 705-790-8110. Okay. I'm willing to talk to anyone, whether they end up doing a polygraph with me or someone else. So, so if they're too far away and they just want answers to something, I'll be happy to, to talk with them, uh, you know. Well, I appreciate that because obviously this is a scary subject to talk about. As a matter of fact, we had some questions from um, partners that asked things like, what does the partner need to do to prepare, and what does the addict need to do to prepare for a polygraph test? Yes. What what I like to do is to speak to the partner uh, beforehand and find out what are the issues as far as the, the partner is concerned because normally it's a woman, so she is the one that has to be satisfied with, with the outcome of the test. Um, you know, that I've answered all of her questions. Um, so I, I, it's important to me to talk uh, with the partner um, prior to the test. I also would like to get a copy of the disclosure before I do the test so I can uh, read it over and just to see what I am dealing with. Um, so Excellent. those are the things and- that... 
I think that's wonderful. I know that one of the things that I do is that I, as a therapist, Jen, you'll have to also let us know what you do. I, as a therapist, have the client at the end of the disclosure submit her five questions to him so that he knows ahead of time he's not in any way blindsided by what the questions will be. That's why Jennifer's husband later on had parking lot disclosure and uh, shared uh, a different answer than he had before. And I help her formulate those questions because sometimes they don't know. They have to be yes or no. They have to be factual. And they can't be questions like, do you love me? You know, that is not a good holograph question. It really has to be on things that can be measured. You know, did you tell me about all the prostitutes? Things like that. Now, Jennifer, how do you do it with your clients? The exact same way, Carol. And uh, Dave can correct me if I'm wrong, but I try to save him a little bit of work. So what I'll do is I'll vet the questions that the client has. Um, And I think you mentioned this earlier, Carol. A lot of women, or maybe Dave, you said it, a lot of women will have, oh, my gosh, 10, 20, 50 questions. And who can blame her? There's so many details of things that she needs to know to feel safe. So what I do before the polygraph is I help her kind of consolidate and really get to the root issues of what she needs to know to feel safe, just like you suggested, Carol, yes or no, fact-based questions, nothing emotional. And then with permission, I will talk to Dave and say, okay, this is what we're thinking. And then I leave it up to Dave as the professional to word the question appropriately for his test. But I want to make sure that, and as Dave said, the partner is well aware of the questions because I've heard stories of partners coming back after the fact, nothing I was involved in, saying, oh, well, he, the examiner changed my questions and I never even got to know this or that. Or, and she was devastated by the fact that they spent all this money and emotional energy and they didn't get what they wanted. So I do exactly what you do, Carol, and I think it's really critical to have conversations like the three of us are today to, for everyone to get on the same page. And I 100% agree, and, you know, I can tell, Dave, that you have a wonderful heart and you're willing to even, if Jennifer had a question about a question and contacted you, you would help her to reformulate that, and then she could get it back to the partner and see if the partner was comfortable with the way that question was reworded yes. for the accuracy of the test. Yes. Okay, I've got a couple other questions. One is, how often can the addict be tested? Well, that's uh, – I don't – I like to make money, so I would like to say once a week. But uh, quite frankly, I, I think that the the less less is best. Um, so I I like to do the I like to do the uh, disclosure test first. I think that's first step in any testing. Um, and then uh, a year later, maybe do a follow up uh, test. Uh, uh, maintenance test just to make sure that over that year that he's maintained sobriety. And then I I would suggest not doing them any more than once every couple of years at the, at the, at the closest, unless, and again, unless there is some, you know, crisis where, you know, it's important to the partner to know right now what's, you know, what's happening here. I need to know. And then, of course, I would suggest, okay, let's do it then. But other than that, I would I would not suggest basing them any more than any closer than two years apart after the the first uh, maintenance test. Okay. And then, how long does a polygraph test take? Usually, uh, between two and two and a half hours, and it depends on. On the person I'm testing, some people are far more talkative than others, and uh, uh, you know, and uh, so it depends on the person you're testing, and depends on the number of issues, and and um, you know, so but I would say most of them are between two and two and a half hours. 
right. Well, I think that uh, that we have answered most of the listener and partner questions. Now, I would like for each one of you to share anything else that you want to share to encourage our listening audience to um, really review and process this information because I know Jen and I really do feel like a disclosure is great, but unless you have a measurement by which you can make sure that the addict was honest, it is um, it, it can cause more havoc later on. And so this helps to close the disclosure. Jen, what do you think? I absolutely agree, Carol. I think that this is the closest we have as partners to a urine test for a drug abuser. And I hope that's okay to say on here, but that's, that's all we have. We don't have anything else to know if our sex addict's partner is telling the truth or not. So, so this is the next best thing. And obviously something that you can hear I'm very passionate about. The only other thing I would suggest to the other thing um, is I hear women say all the time, well, I can't afford it. I can't afford a polygraph. And I understand finances are different and difficult for everybody. But I honestly have to say, your sanity is worth way more. And I encourage anyone out there listening that says, well, I can't afford it, however much it costs, please, please, please um, do what you can to either save the money or do something because it is worth it. The peace of mind that it gives you when he passes is absolutely worth it. Thank you so much, Jen. And then, David, any last thoughts from you? I think I think Jen's pretty much covered it. I, um, you know, I, I, if someone was really desperate and didn't have the money, I, I mean, I, it's not all about money uh, for me. Um, and as I mean, I'm not going to be. I don't want to be taken advantage of, but I, I would leave it to Jen if she were to call me and say, hey, this person's, uh, you know, needs this badly. Can you help them out? I would gladly do that. Not a problem. All right. And, you know, I just had an email that came in that said, my polygrapher tests four times a year. Can you ask David why he thinks that it should be no sooner than every two? Well, my answer to that is uh, that the person can become habituated to the polygraph. They just get so used to doing it, it's it's just by rote. And um, I think that, you know, the, the, the whole process becomes a little bit muddled then. I, I'd be, I'd be thinking that, I don't know how much faith I would have in it doing it doing it that often quite honestly that, uh, that's just my own opinion I, I mean it would may depend on the person and and uh, but that, that's that's my feeling on it excellent and I just want to remind our listening audience I'm talking with David Robbins R O B B I N S you can contact him at drobbins at rogers, R-O-G-E-R-S, dot com. His website is robbinspolygraph.com, and he can be reached at 705-790-8110. And, you know, there are special people in the world, Dave, and I can tell you're one of them. So thank you so much oh, for being you. a part of our show today. Yeah, and thank yeah. you, Jen. Oh, hey, I'm always just here. You know that, but no, thank you, David. This is this means a lot. There's so many good questions out there, and I think you've answered them all very, very well. And Carol, thank you for asking all those important questions. Thank right. you. You all have a great week. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Uh huh. Bye bye. Well, so as you can tell, there are really good reasons why somebody should get a polygraph test, just in the same way as APSAT believes that we really need to do disclosures. You deserve the truth. But you have to get with specialists that know how to do them. 
So I can't emphasize enough, go to appsats.com, that's A-P-S-A-T-S dot com, and look for somebody in your area. And if you can't find somebody in your area, shoot me an email, and I'll find out if anybody would be willing to travel to you, have you traveled to them, and get this uh, disclosure and polygraph set up so that you can feel safe in an unsafe situation. I'm Carol Jurgensen-Sheep, a.k.a. Carol the Coach, and we'll see you next week for, again, APSAT-sponsored Betrayal Recovery Radio. For more information, go to APSATS.org, the Association of Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists, to find a professional in your area who is trained to help you after sexual betrayal.